Please be seated. And would you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 11. Any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church. The kids would like to go to children's church. We're continuing a study through Revelation. And today we come to 11, 1 to 13, a text that I think fits very well with the Palm Sunday focus. And then next Sunday, we'll, on Easter, we'll study the next passage, which I think fits very well uh, for the Easter story. Revelation chapter 11. So, what does it mean, really, to be a Christian who celebrates Palm Sunday? Uh, you know, here's Palm Sunday, and, and here we are at the beginning of Holy Week. You know, next Sunday is Easter. We're thinking about the time when Jesus went to the cross. But, but what does it mean to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, one who walks in Jesus' footsteps, when we consider this week that those footsteps led to the cross? I, I think being a follower of Jesus takes on a, a, a real poignancy and urgency in our lives as we think about the fact that we're following the crucified Savior. I, I think it's a very uh, powerful message when you think about it that way. It reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous words when he said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Or as Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So to be a follower of Christ is to take up our crosses. And I think... That's a very sort of different picture of Christianity that you might get by listening to TV preachers or reading the best-selling Christian books. You know, sometimes you get the sense that Christianity is about sort of making my life better. You know, to be a Christian is to become wealthy. To be a Christian is to be healthy. To be a Christian is to have all your problems sort of solved, emotional problems, relational problems. And that the more blessed you are, the stronger of a Christian you must be. And I don't want to deny the fact that God sometimes blesses His people in powerful ways. But to be a follower of Christ means to follow the Christ of Holy Week who went to the cross. So today we come to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, which I think could be argued this is probably one of the most, if not the most, difficult passage in Revelation to interpret. So of all the thorny, naughty, confusing visions, to me I think chapter 11, and I've read some other scholars have the same opinion, is the hardest to understand. So so isn't that great? We're going to deal with... (laughs) The trickiest passage of all. And I'm going to give you my best shot at it. You know, this is again one of those passages where there's lots of different viewpoints, views that go in lots of different directions. So it's one of those passages where I think as believers we have to extend a lot of grace to each other and having different viewpoints. But, but having said that, I'm, I'm going to try to do my best to give you the way I, I see it, the way I, th- what I think it means. But hopefully, regardless of how you interpret this vision or that symbol or that detail, Hopefully we can unify around the underlying application of this passage, which is 
that we're to follow the Christ of Holy Week. I, I think you're going to see this passage. The more I studied it, I was thinking, this is a perfect Palm Sunday passage. Because it's talking about what it means for followers of Christ to walk in His steps, the steps of the cross. So let me read the passage. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court and do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Amen. Crystal clear, huh? <laughs> Woo. Well, there's two um, sort of parts to the vision. There's, or I should say there's two visions here. The first is a shorter one in verses 1 and 2 that deals with the measuring of the temple. The second vision is verses 3 to 13, which deals with these two witnesses. So let's just look at them quickly in turn. The first one is the, the measuring of the temple. So you have in verses 1 and 2... John has this vision. He's given a reed, so it's like a, you know, like a piece of bamboo, essentially. They didn't have measuring tape then. They used reeds because they were strong and straight and, and uh, didn't bend. And he's told to go and measure the temple. So, so he measures the temple, but he's just measuring a part of the temple. It's the, uh, in fact, you see that word, the temple. That, that Greek word there isn't the, the word for the whole temple, the heros, heron. It's a word for the, the inner part of the temple, the, the naos, the, the inner sanctuary part. So part of it's measured, but part of it's trampled. Do you see that? The outer court of the temple, and in fact, in verse 2, the whole city of Jerusalem is trampled upon by the nations. So what does that mean? Okay, okay so that's the vision. Well, I, I think, maybe start with the, the easier part to interpret, the measuring of the temple. If you look in sort of biblical imagery, measuring typically signifies that God is marking something out, and in this case, to protect it or to preserve it. That God is specifically going to dwell there. His presence will be there and therefore it will be protected. That's what it means to, to measure it out. It's sort of like God's saying, I'm going to live there, so let's make the measurements. Let's, take, let's mark this out as the place in which I'm going to dwell. This imagery actually comes out of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, 
chapter 40. Ezekiel has a vision of a heavenly temple that's coming someday. And in this, this vision of the temple that Ezekiel sees, he follows this angel around who goes around measuring the different parts of this heavenly temple, this, this glorious temple. And at the end of the measuring, what happens? The glory of God comes into the temple. So, so it's sort of a measuring to prepare for God's presence that protects and preserves the dwelling place. This same imagery occurs in Revelation 21. If you turn over to Revelation 21, the Ezekiel imagery is there. I love Revelation 21. Boy, I can't wait to preach on this in a couple months. I promise we will get to it in 2010. Here's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So here's a future glimpse of our home. And a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now here's the key. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. So in that future home, the best thing about the New Jerusalem isn't streets of gold or pearly gates. It's that God lives there with His people. He's going to be with us and we're going to be with Him. And notice what they do with that future Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. So, so this measuring imagery in the Bible and even in Revelation signifies sort of a marking out of the place where God will dwell. And we just look forward to that day when the new Jerusalem will come and God will dwell there. And, and what is the new Jerusalem? It's us. We're the city of God. We're the people of God. Look back at chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven prepared as a, a bride for her husband. It's the beautifully dressed for her husband. It's the bride of Christ. So the New Jerusalem is a symbol for God's people, the bride of Christ. And so we look forward to that day when, when we will be with Jesus, where, where we'll be protected with Him, where there'll be no more weeping, no more mourning. The whole city, so to speak, will be marked out as the dwelling place of God forever in God's presence. But that's not what we, the temple of the Holy Spirit, look like on earth today. right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit today, but we're not in that final state where there's no more crying and no more tears and all that. We, we go through trials and tribulation here. I think going back to Revelation 11 then, that's what it's talking about. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a major New Testament theme that, that the temple of God is now God's people. At the time when John wrote this, Revelation, the city of Jerusalem had already been sacked and razed by the, uh, by the Roman uh, armies of Titus. It, was, it wasn't there anymore. There wasn't a temple in Jerusalem when this was written. It's talking about us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But unlike that future Jerusalem that's completely covered with God's presence, we live in the in-between time between Jesus' first and second comings where things are already here but not yet complete. And so we're measured where? In the inner temple. In other words, internally we've been marked out as God's people. He's set His seal upon us. The Holy Spirit is in us. 
We're His people. But externally, in terms of the circumstances of our lives, we can still be trampled upon. You know, that, that we as God's people can still go through suffering. What an important message this would have been for those Christians who originally received the book of Revelation. I think it's always important when you read Revelation to ask the question, what would it mean to the original readers? Because I think sometimes we get Revelation and we just go shooting off like a rocket into the future. But this was written to people back then, first and foremost. What would it have meant to them? To people who were living under the oppressive power of the Roman government that was harassing, in some cases imprisoning, even in some extreme cases uh, murdering and killing Christians who wouldn't worship Caesar. Christians who in their towns, because they wouldn't worship the, the deities of the local village or Christians who were getting kicked out of their trade guilds, basically kind of like unions. We have unions today. It's sort of like unions back then. They would get kicked out of their unions because they wouldn't worship the union deity as part of their allegiance. So they were seen as unloyal, uh, un, uh, bad citizens, and they were thrown out and persecuted. And they're wondering, where is God in all this? I thought we were God's people. I thought Jesus was the king. And they're being reminded, yeah, you are God's people. You're marked. You're His. But in this world, we as Christians can be trampled upon. We can go through difficulties. And that's just a good reminder for us. Being a Christian in this life does not exempt us from difficulty. I think there's a kind of Christian message out there that says the more faith you have, the more blessed you will be in terms of finances, prosperity, health, all that stuff. You know? But brothers and sisters, Christians can get laid off. You know, Christians can get depressed and have mental illness struggles. Christians can uh, have kids that go haywire. Kids, Christians can have kids that are born with major difficulties or, or handicaps. Christians can have difficulties in marriages. Christians can struggle to find a spouse even though they've prayed for one day after day and week after week. And, more to the point of this, this book, Christians sometimes suffer for their faith. They can be persecuted. Being a Christian is not like a magic shield that protects us like Teflon from the trials of this world. And, and I think sometimes we wonder, is God with me? And, and when, we're, when we're in the sunny times of life, when everything's going well, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, I know God blesses me. I know God loves me. Look how good my life is. Then we go through the hard times and we think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God's mad at me because I'm going through difficult times. But our circumstances aren't the gauge of God's blessing. It's whether or not we have the Holy Spirit, whether or not we're sealed on the inside, whether or not Christ is in us. You know? Whether or not we have, as Jesus said, a spring of living water welling up from the inside of us so that as Christians, even when we're going through the garbage of life, there's still, we can't even understand it, even though we want to give up and we want to throw up our hands, there's still this like stream of faith and hope bubbling up from within us. We're like, where is this coming from? You know, you talk to a real Christian, a born-again Christian, who has the Holy Spirit in them, and they've gone through some fiery trial in their life, and they come out the other side, and you go, how did you do it? And they go, I don't know. I think God just carried me through. And, and I still, how do you still have your faith, you know, after you lost your child? It's only the Holy Spirit. God is within me. I, I can't explain it. That's what they'll tell you. Real Christians will, are, are carried along by God's power. Sometimes against their own will, we're carried along in our faith. And God sustains us in all of that. As Paul said, outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed by day by day. And so we look forward to someday when there will be no more crying and tears, 
But right now, we're, as they say in the old days, we pass through the veil of tears in this life. Even as Christians, we struggle. And yet there is an inner protection, an inner sealing for Christians. We've been predestined. We've been elected, chosen, saved, marked with the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's in us, despite our, even our best efforts sometimes, to get rid of it. <laughs> because we're so frustrated with what God's doing in our lives. But the faith is there. It's the mark of true Christians. And so, what does it mean to be a Christian, a real Christian on the verge of Holy Week? I think it starts with recognizing that, that we have to belong to Jesus. Do you belong to Christ? Are you really a Christian in the biblical sense? Or is it sort of a nominal, you know, I grew up in a church, my family goes to church. You know, is it real Christianity that's inside of you? Is Christ living in your heart through faith? Have you trusted in Him? That's real faith. And we're going to need that. Because as we're going to see now as we move to the next image, we've got a tough calling and a tough task ahead of us. So at verse 3, we now shift images. We shift from an image of the temple being measured to two witnesses. It kind of feels like image whiplash to us. Like what? Are we talking about temple or are we talking about two guys? What is this? But we should be used to this by now. Because prophetic or poetic, uh, in both cases, uses imagery that changes very quickly. Jesus is a lion. Jesus is a lamb. You know, boom, boom. This is just the nature of prophetic literature. It's, it's very image-based, and the images can talk about the same things with very radically different images. Um, you know, there, there's the four horsemen, and later on there are the four winds. Well, are they horses or are they winds? That's not the point. The point is, what, what does it mean? What is it telling us about whatever it is that it's describing? Uh, some of you have studied poetry. Some of you have literary backgrounds. You know, part of poetry is the use of vivid imagery to communicate truth and ideas. And so the images here are shifting, but I think we're still talking about the same thing. Because now you get these two witnesses. Verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So who is this? What are these guys? Is this like some super Christians in the future? Is this Moses and Elijah come back from the dead? Who are these witnesses? Well, again, this is one of the most challenging passages to interpret, I think, in the whole book. People have different viewpoints. So, so I'll give you my view, and you know, you can kick it around like a soccer ball if you want, you know, whatever. Um, but but I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is. Let me tell you why I think it's that. I think that these two witnesses are symbols for the church. I think it's us. I, notice, I think that the two witnesses are the same thing that the temple is. That they're just images to describe God's people. Uh, and so these two witnesses are a symbol for the church, specifically in its gospel witness, its gospel prophecy to the world and to the nations. Now let me give you four reasons why I think these two guys aren't really two guys, but are actually a bunch of guys, <laughs> all of us as God's people. Four, let me just give you four quick arguments. And again, there are different viewpoints on this, so people have different opinions. It's difficult to interpret. But number one, first reason I think this is, these are the whole church is because they're called witnesses. Look at verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, if you take that Greek word witness, martus, and you look it up anywhere else in the book of Revelation, that, that's how I often try to figure out what words mean, is I say, well, how is it used elsewhere in the book? Are there any patterns? Are there any trends? I try to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If you look up that Greek word everywhere else in Revelation, it refers either to Jesus Himself as the faithful witness, the faithful martyrs, 
who especially in his crucifixion was faithful to God's message, or it refers to Christians and their faithful witness. And so that tends me to think, okay, this must be, this could be a symbol for Christians because Christians are called witnesses elsewhere. In fact, look down at verse 7. It says, when they have finished their testimony, their martyria, their, uh, their official witness, this is very much legal language. They're giving an official testimony to the world of who Jesus is that's going to be used in a court of law when Christ comes again. Um, and so they're giving their testimony. You look up that word testimony in Revelation. Every, everywhere else it appears in Revelation, it always refers to the testimony of believers for the gospel of Jesus and the word of God. And so it makes you think, well, maybe it means the same thing here if it's used that way in every other occurrence. The second reason why I think that these two witnesses very well could be a symbol for the church is because of that time stamp. Now, this is really tricky stuff here. I still don't fully know if I get this, but look at these guys prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, you notice this. The temple is trampled for 42 months. I'm not a math wizard, but uh, 42 months, 30 days in a month comes out to 1,260 days. What's also interesting, I know this sounds really wild. This, this sounds like an episode of Lost or something, you know, with all kinds of number theories. Um, it's also interesting that 42 months or 1,260 days is equal to three and a half years. Now, what's interesting about that is if you go back to the book of Daniel, tra- track with me here, okay? In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a terrifying vision of an evil, oppressive government that persecutes God's people for three and a half years. Or he calls it times, times, and half a time. So I think that, that what, what, what John is doing is he's taking that number as a symbolic number for a period of time in which God's people are persecuted. And he's sort of applying it here to this image. So the church is trampled on externally for this period of persecution. That uh, At the same time, these guys are prophesying. So because these numbers are all the same, it seems to me these, that's telling us that these images are the same, that these events are the same. They're just different images. And so if the temple is the church, it seems to me these guys must be the church. So I'm, I'm sort of just sort of pulling together what it seems to be being pulled together in the text. The third reason why I think this is the church and not necessarily literally two guys sometime in the future is the fact that they're called the two olive trees. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees. Now, Again, what in the world? Where do these olive trees come from? That's also, surprise, surprise, from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet. He had a vision about God restoring and rebuilding the temple in his day because the temple had gotten wiped out by the Babylonians. And in this vision, he sees these two olive trees in the temple. And he's like, I don't know what this means. What is it? And the angel tells him, these two olive trees represent the leaders of of God's people. So one represents the governor, Zerubbabel. One represents the high priest, Joshua. And he says, these guys, God's with you. He's going to help you rebuild the temple. And so these guys are the representatives of God's people. They're representative offices. They represent God's people. So here again, representing God's people in this text. It's interesting too, by the way. Just another little aside. Uh, Probably at this point you're totally lost. But in Revelation, three different times... Christians in the church are called a kingdom and priests. A kingdom and priests. And here we see this allusion back to the governor and the high priest. 
So I think there's just another image. But then the fourth and final reason I'm going to lay before you why I think these two witnesses are in fact the church, and to me this is so convincing, to me anyway, is the fact that they're called the two lampstands. Now, in Revelation's imagery, what are lampstands representative of? Churches. Remember when Jesus first appears? Let's go back to chapter 1, in fact. Go to chapter 1 of Revelation. Just see this for yourself. Jesus appears in a vision to John. Terrifying vision. Jesus is walking around the seven lampstands. It's like, what does all this mean? And then in verse 20, I love chapter 1, verse 20, because it's one of the few times in Revelation we're actually told what a symbol means. I love that. You know? <laughs> I can't wait to get to heaven and get like, you know, like the, the decoder book for this whole thing. <laughs> Where's the decoder book? Apparently like, this is the only line from the decoder book we have. But this is one of those few times he actually tells us what a symbol means. And he says in verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know, so I'm real simple. If he says lampstands are churches and then something appears later and he says they're lampstands, I'm just going to stay with what I know. You know, I like solid stuff. So I'm going to go, okay, probably is a church, you know. Now you go, wait a minute, there's two churches here, though, not seven. Well, Revelation, as we've seen again and again and again, uses numbers very symbolically. The number seven is a number of totality or completeness, like the seven days of creation. So those seven churches sort of represent all churches. But here he's trying to say something different about the church. It's a church in its witness to the world. And two in the Old Testament is a number of witness. Everything's confirmed by two witnesses. Jesus sent his disciples out as witnesses two by two. And so I think perhaps here it's, it, it's two because he's trying to describe the church in its witnessing or its prophetic ministry. So that's why I really become convinced that this is probably just an image of us in our ministry. Now, there's a big problem with my theory. It's verse 6. Verse 6 is kind of the monkey wrench in my whole solution. It says, These men have power to shut up the sky. I'm back in Revelation 11. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So the church doesn't have power to do that. We, we can't make the, the sky stop raining and water turn to blood, you know. Like Town of Hingham won't give us our building permit? Fine. No rain, okay? You know, it's like... Wouldn't that be cool? So we can't do that. So like, well, maybe that's not the church. Maybe that has to be people in the future. Well, um, I guess, again, I would take this more figuratively and say it's a picture of the church in its prophetic ministry of proclaiming that Jesus is coming again, that the judgment is coming, and it's the fact that, that the world can't stand against that message, that message of coming judgment. In fact, look back at verse 5. See, if you take this passage literally as literally two guys in the future, you have a problem too. It's in verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone wants to harm them must die. So if you're going to take it literally, you're going to say, no, no, this has got to be two literal people in the future. You also have a problem. Because now you have two guys, so anytime anyone opposes them, they're like Godzilla or, you know, 
smog from the Hobbit or something. They're, you know, they're breathing fire. Hey, you don't speak about Jesus. You know, it's right. I mean, so it's a challenge either way, no matter what interpretation you take. That's why I say it's a very difficult passage. It seems more likely to me that the fire breathing prophets are very similar to the picture we have of Jesus in chapter one and in chapter 19 of the sword breathing Jesus. Jesus opens his mouth and a sword comes out of his mouth. Does that mean literally Jesus is going to spit swords at people? I, I think what it means is it's a, it's a symbol of the fact that he speaks a word of judgment. That the, that's that sword of judgment. He's coming to speak judgment to the world. And so in the same way, the church has a message. And part of what we have to tell the world is the clock is ticking. Christ is coming back. Judgment's on its way. And people have tried to stand against that message down through the centuries. Governments and kings have tried to wipe out the church. Those governments have gone and, and the church has grown. You know, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is viral. It is spreading around the world at an exponential rate today. You know, tens of thousands of people every day are coming to faith in Christ. It's, it's just nothing has been seen like it in the history of the world. In the last half century... The spread of the church and of the gospel into Latin America, Southeast Asia, especially China, Sub-Saharan Africa. Africa is is more Christian than we are. It's amazing what's happened in the last 50 years in terms of the spread of Christianity. And 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 wherever people try to stop this message, wherever governments oppress it, it keeps keeps going. Voltaire said in the 18th century that in 100 years, the Bible would be extinct. Well, Voltaire is extinct. <laughs> but the Bible is like just going everywhere, being translated into every language in the world. There's nothing, there's never been anything like this in the, all of human history, the spread of this faith. And it's not because the church is a really well-oiled advertising machine. Okay? The church is often a liability to the spread of the gospel in the way we conduct ourselves. But despite all that, this is a supernatural thing that God is doing for His message. I think that's what these images mean, is that nothing can stop the spread of this gospel. But it's a message that, that the world will not want to hear. And I think that's part of what it means, to get back to my original question, to be a Christian at the beginning of Holy Week. What does that mean? I think it means in part that if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we have to take up this prophetic calling to speak the gospel. And that it's going to be an offensive message. The message is offensive. No matter how nice you are, no matter how gently you put it, the gospel is an offensive message in every culture. Every culture will have its points where the gospel will be completely at odds with that culture and, and will just you know, run, a, run afoul of that cultural's conventional wisdom. Uh, for instance, think about in our culture. Uh, one, the, the first thing you, you have to teach with the gospel is, hey, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. There's no one righteous. There's no one who's good enough for God. Right there, boom, you're running afoul of the culture's conventional wisdom. Because the view in our culture today is we're all decent people. I mean, you've got you know, pedophiles and terrorists, they're bad, but everyone else is okay, right? And, and we're all good people. And besides, what's right and wrong anyway? Everyone kind of has to decide for themselves what their own moral views are and what their own ethics are. That's the wisdom today. You know, speaking of loss, my, my wife and I got sucked into the show. Fortunately, the show is almost over in six weeks, and I'm going to leave Egypt and be free. But, um, when this, but in this show, in case you haven't been following it, it's about this weird island. 
And these weird things are happening on this island. There's people who are stranded on this island. And we're starting to finally discover in this last season that on this island there's these two kind of supernatural beings. One's the good guy and one's the bad guy. And in the story, the, uh, the good guy was explaining things in just this last episode this week. And he was saying, you know, he goes, the bad guy on the island, he believes that everyone has a corrupt, evil nature. He says, but I believe that people can choose who they want to be. That we can decide to be a good person or a bad person depending on what we decide. And that's the conventional wisdom of our day. And so to come to our culture and say, I'm sorry, we're sinners. Even in our finest moments, we are undercutting ourselves with our sinful motivations. Or as the Scripture says, even our finest deeds are as filthy rags. That we're sinners in need of a Savior. Or that God is coming as the judge of this world. That this world is not going to end well. That Christ is coming in judgment upon a world that has rejected Him. Again, that runs against what everyone believes. Everyone today believes God would never judge anybody. That God is sort of just sort of a, um, a love force. That, that He's just kind of a, a, a vibe of happiness and love and that He would never judge. That He doesn't hold us accountable. That He's not holy. You know? or, or even think about the good news that we preach. What's the Gospel message? The good news, okay, that's the bad news. The good news is God sent His own Son Jesus to die for us and to shed His blood so that through the death of Jesus, dying my death and suffering in my place, I could be forgiven and reconciled to God. And you say, what great news! And the world says, you kidding me? That's child abuse. I can't believe in a God who would do that. You think God needs a sacrifice to be His wrath appeased? I mean, come on. God would never be like that. And so, even today, as in Paul's day, the Gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we just have to be prepared for that, that that we're called to be witnesses. We're called to speak this message. And it's not always going to be received well, even if we say it as nicely and as gently and as humbly as we possibly can. It's the message itself that's offensive in every culture and every time. But I think, again, that's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Holy Week Christian, is to follow in His footsteps mean we have to be willing to witness. Jesus was witnessing during Holy Week you know, Palm, okay, so you got Palm Sunday, right? That's where you enter Jerusalem. That's what we remember today. Then you have Thursday night was the Last Supper, right? And Good Friday. But question, what happened from Thursday afternoon back through Sunday afternoon? What, what, what was Jesus doing that time? He was preaching. He preached for four days straight. Jesus was first and foremost a mighty preacher. And he preached everywhere he went. He was always teaching and always teaching. And so the four days of Holy Week, he was in the temples preaching, 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 debating, arguing, teaching. People were coming at him with sneak attacks and questions, trying to trip him up and trying to get him to say something that would get him in trouble so they could kill him. And he just kept debating and arguing and teaching. And, and that's what we have to be if we're going to be Holy Week Christians. We have to be willing to walk in this world as witnesses who speak this gospel message, understanding that it's just not going to fit our culture. It never has. It didn't in Paul's day and it doesn't in our day. And then understanding that it's also, in many cases, going to lead us to suffering. Look at verses 7 to 10. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. 
Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So there will come an end to this prophetic ministry, this witnessing ministry. They'll be attacked. They'll be killed. They don't get burial, which is a great insult not to be buried in those days. And, um, And notice that it's for three and a half days. So for three and a half years, symbolically, they prophesy for three and a half days they're sort of overcome. So in other words, there's a short period at the very end when these prophets are killed. And it's a reminder again that if I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, I have to understand that those footsteps lead to the cross. That there's sometimes suffering. There's sometimes loss. In some places in the world, there's high price to pay for being a Christian. This sometimes we take for granted here in America because we have religious freedom. But some places, it's just not the case. But even here in America, we can... We can be harassed. I was uh, talking to a brother in the church this last week, and he was telling me the story of how he became a Christian. He was in college. He'd grown up in a very sort of nominal Christian family that always told him, eh, just be a good person, try your best, that's all that's important. And, and, but despite his best efforts to be a good person and try his best, he always had an awareness that he was a sinner and that he wasn't, he, maybe he didn't use that language at the time, but he's like, I'm not measuring up to what I should be. And so he couldn't sort of alleviate his conscience by just trying harder. And then he went to college and he came to understand the gospel. And one night he was particularly perplexed by his sin. And so he went out of his college dorm room to another dorm room and to the guy who was a Christian and said, hey, can I talk to you about this? And so they talked and he came to understand Jesus had died for his sins. And it just set him free. Christ had done for him what he couldn't do for himself by just trying to do self-improvement. And he was like totally set free. He was so excited. So finally he got to go home on break to school, from school to see his family. And, you know, can you see where this is going? Mom, Dad, I've got the greatest news. I've become a Christian. I found out that we don't have to try to be good people to get to heaven because we can't anyway and Christ has forgiven us and blah, blah, blah. And, and he says that when he did that, this firestorm erupted against him from his parents. That, that he was mocked criticized, screamed at, this enormous argument erupted in his house. Who do you think you are to come in here and preaching at us? How old are you anyway? What do you know? Blah, blah, blah. He, he says during that, that time when he was home, he was trying to pray before he ate like all the other Christians he saw at school doing. And he, he'd be sitting there praying, eating a cereal in the morning and his mom would be sitting there just mocking him, you know, harassing him as he's trying to pray. It's like, Wow. Some of us have been in those experiences where there's just this strong negative. It isn't always the case, but it can be there. And in some places in the world, Christians pay for their faith with their lives. You know, the beast comes up from the abyss. The beast is alive and well. I, I do believe that there's sort of a final manifestation of this beast coming. But the beast is already alive and well in the world. You know, it's like John says in 1 John, Brothers, you have heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. And so in John's day, Rome was the beast. Rome was the great city that was oppressing God's people. In our day, the beast is alive and well. The beast, you know, the beast is running wild in North Korea. That's one of the worst places in the world to be a Christian right now. It's one of the worst places in the world to be a human right now. You know, the human rights issues there. 
In Saudi Arabia, if you convert from Islam to Christianity, that's punishable by death. So there's people who are taking great prices, paying a great price to worship our Savior in the world. We have to understand that, that the beast is alive and well. But I also think that this passage is talking about the very end as well. It's not only that we as Christians have to pay a price for our faith sometimes and we need to embrace that and accept it. It is part of being a follower of Jesus. But, but I also think this passage is talking about the very end. It's, it's sort of reflected in that as well. Look at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. So in other words, I, I think there will come a point in the history of the church where the church's testimony will be done. We'll have completed our mission. It says in Matthew 24, Jesus says, this gospel must be preached uh, to all nations as a testimony to all peoples, and then the end will come. So right now we're in that phase where we're proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is spreading to the whole world. But, but I believe there will then come a point, a very brief period, right at the end before Christ comes, when our, our gospel ministry will be done and will no longer have effectiveness and that this beast will arise and I believe the church will be persecuted almost to extinction, perhaps. And if those days were not cut short, even the elect would not survive. That, that there's coming a final sort of phase at the end. That, that in a sense, I, I think the church, not only individually as Christians, but kind of as a church down through the ages, recapitulates, retells the story of Jesus. That we are His witnesses in this world today, just as He was a witness. And, and then it will get more intense. And then at the very end, we'll finish our mission just as Jesus has finished His mission. And then there will be a passion where the church will be persecuted and then killed and then Christ comes again. So that's, that's sort of my own little timeline. And people disagree and you, you know, people have different viewpoints. That's sort of my simple timeline. And, and, and I, so I believe that the, the church is called to suffer with Christ. So that also means, and I'll just throw this out there only because I've been asked about it. And since we're on the most controversial passage in Revelation, we might as well just throw it all out there on the table. But um, you know, people have asked me, you know, what about the secret rapture of the church? And this is just my view. You can totally disagree with me and be a member in good standing of our church. But uh, I, uh, I do not believe there's any secret rapture of the church. I just don't find it in the Bible. Every passage I'm pointed to, it's like, yeah, that's the secret rapture of the church. When I look at it in the Bible, it's like, no, that looks like the coming of Jesus. So I believe Jesus is coming again. I believe throughout the New Testament, the hope that's given to Christians is Jesus is coming again. The hope isn't we get to escape problems and escape difficulty. You know, do you know that this idea of the secret rapture of the church, did you, do you know that it did not exist for the first 18 centuries of church history? Are you aware of that? No one had ever spoken it. Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant. It's a totally new idea. Uh, it was first articulated by a guy in the 1840s named John Nelson Darby. And uh, he was the first one. To, and today it's sort of you know, left behind. It's what everyone has heard of and read. But until then, no one ever talked about this. You know. And I just wonder sometimes, maybe it's because we're Americans, that the idea that we escape suffering is so appealing to us and seems so logical. Since when have we ever thought that we don't have to suffer with Christ? You know, and, and I believe at some point the whole church will have to recapitulate that, that, that whole suffering of Christ. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> I hope preaching this sermon doesn't invalidate my ticket, but um, whatever. That's what I say. In the end, 
what does it matter? It's just my view. People can have different views. They do. But, but I think the, Christ, the church is called to suffer with Christ. And that the, hope, the thing we have to hope for is not some escape hatch, but it's Jesus coming again in glory. That's what I see in the Bible. Anyway. But whatever. We can debate that and you can have something to talk about at lunch. But isn't it great? Whether, whatever you believe about the secret rapture or not, I hope we can agree that there is another Easter coming for the church. I hope we can unify on that, whether about the finer points of eschatology. If the church is called to witness for Christ, if the church is called to suffer with Christ, if there's a Good Friday for the church, there's an Easter morning for the church. And that's in verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. So they're, they're just retelling the story of Jesus' Holy Week. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This is no secret. Everyone sees this. It's the final victory. And then the earth starts to quake. And then verses 15 to 19 is the final judgment day and it's all done. And so we have a resurrection coming. If we carry the cross, we can look forward to the crown. If Christ was raised, we have hope of being raised. Our hope as Christians is not ultimately in the Tea Party movement. Our hope as Christians is not in any health care bill. Our hope as Christians is not in, in societal improvement, even though we have to work for all those things. And, and our hope as Christians is not in, in getting a better job or getting a better spouse or whatever. Our hope is the coming of Christ. This is where we look. This is, where, this is how we get through this life as we know Christ our Lord is coming back. And so we can be faithful to Him now and serve Him now because there's an Easter coming for us as Christians. So what then does it mean to be a Christian in Holy Week? To be a Christian in Holy Week means, first of all, that we have the Holy Spirit, that we're followers of Christ, we've been born again, that Christ lives within us, that we've been measured internally even though we suffer externally. To be a Holy Week Christian, I think, means that we are witnesses spreading that Gospel message even though we know it's offensive to the world's sensibilities. It was, was in Paul's day and will always be. To be a Holy Week Christian means that we suffer for our faith at times. And it means that our ultimate hope is in Christ Himself and His return. And I think about that and I just think, man, I don't think I have what it takes to be a Holy Week Christian. I just, boy, I don't, I, don't, I don't like suffering. I don't like slow traffic. Um, I get annoyed at McDonald's when the guy messes my order up. I mean, I just, I don't like being inconvenienced. How dare anyone inconvenience me to think of me suffering for Christ? I'm just such a weak Christian. I think how, you know, I, I would like to think I would suffer with Christ and walk with Him, but I have a suspicion I'm probably going to be more like Peter. You're with Jesus, aren't you? Oh, no, not me. I, you know. <laughs> You're with Jesus. Eh, I think you got the wrong guy. I think it's probably more who I am as I think about it. I, I wish I was different, but I just know my weakness. And so I think I come full circle back to the verse, two verses about that ceiling. That the only hope I have of being a Holy Week Christian is the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. It's only as I come to God every day and say, Jesus, 
I can't walk the walk you walked. I'm not strong enough. I need your Holy Spirit to help me today to be who you want me to be. It's not only are we saved by grace to become a Christian, but I think you've got to walk by grace as a Christian every day and trust in the power of God that every day I need to remind myself of what Paul said in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's pray.